This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do you ever have the issue of starting books and not finishing them? I think most people, if they're honest, we all run into that situation. I'll have a book that is such a great idea and I, the, the premise is amazing and someone told me about it and I'll start the book and I don't finish it. Or it might, I might not finish it until I remember that I still have it and I'll go finish it years later. And it's super frustrating because a lot of what's in there I've been told is so good and I need it or maybe I got the short end version of it from someone so I feel like I have a good idea of it. This is kind of the approach that we can fall into uh, with so many important books, including the Bible, and more specifically, the Christmas story. There's an interesting list I found that describes why we are prone uh, to not finishing books, to not finishing stories. Uh, Top 10 list. Number one, you just don't have the patience. Uh, Number two, you just can't make up your mind what you even think of the book as you're reading it. And so even in those first two examples, right, you don't necessarily, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reading certain aspects of it. I'm not quite sure what I'm feeling about it. I have to be really patient to get to the point where they start to reveal the real purpose and the, and the reason uh, for this plot line. I'm not sure if I can hang in that long. So I can't make up my mind what I think. I'm not really patient enough to figure it out. Another example or another reason, you just don't get the form. A lot of uh, literary critics uh, talk about not being able to finish certain books that are brought before them because the form, the structure, the way the story is laid out is difficult for them to follow. Another reason why, you're, you're easily bored. You, you're just not, my, entertain, my, my uh, attention is not grasped enough. And so I just, I just give up. I'm not interested. The fifth reason, characters just don't do anything for you. Something about uh, a certain aspect, the protagonist or the antagonist, there's just something about them I don't like or I don't connect with, and so I stop, I stop reading. Number six, the concept just goes right over your head. I start reading this. I don't get where they're going. I don't really understand the overarching idea here. I just, I just, I just quit. The seventh reason, the author's language is not as good as you perceive yours to be. That's a big one. It's like, you know, I see what they're saying and I know where they're going, but I would have said it differently. I don't like the way way they use that word. I don't like the fact that they make usage of the Oxford comma. I'm I'm an Oxford comma guy. I don't like the the way that they structured a thing with the wording. And so I just, it's not the way I would do it. The eighth reason, you prefer comfort books. There are some books that make you have to think. They make you have to question some things that you already hold to be true. They make you have to revisit some things that may be painful. And so you're, 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 you, have the, you have the position that you're like, I would rather, if I'm going to read anyway, I want to read for leisure. I want to read for comfort. And so that's, that's my reason for not finishing this book. Number nine, there's this indefinable something something that you want to pull you in. There's this, there's this intangible it factor that you feel you need in order to, com- to, to complete the book. And so you just don't because that, that it factor doesn't appear to be there. And then finally, number 10, there's just way too many options. 
There are way too many other options. If I'm already having any of these one through nine issues with the book, there's so many other options. There's so many other things I can read where I do find comfort, where I do have the patience to finish, where I really do have a good idea of what I want to get out of this book. I get the form and the structure so it connects with me. I'm not bored. The characters are more like me or the characters function the way I would function so I can, I can relate to them better. I get the concept, so I'm willing to go to those other options. Uh, uh, the author uh, uses language that is much more germane to my way of speaking and my mode of discourse, right? So all of these things are reasons all of us can identify with. We all can say, you know, there are certain things about some stories that, gra- that, gra- that get my attention, and there are certain things that just don't. Nothing wrong with that, right? But here's the danger. When we treat God's story this way, then we miss God's mission. When we treat God's story this way, we do with God's story what we do with these other stories. If I'm already not going to finish the book, then what I'll likely do is just fill in the blanks with what I kind of think they were going to do anyway. I kind of assume that's the direction things are going. If I had to guess, this is how the book would end. And so when we fill in those blanks, we don't even get the real mission of the author. We don't get the real mission of the story. We don't get the real purpose of the story. We don't even know how the story ends, and we may not even know if there's a sequel to complete the story. We don't know any of that. So if you don't, if we don't, if I don't, finish the story. We can't help but fill in the blanks. So what you do with the story of Christmas is really important here. Here we are in this season of Advent. What you do with the story of Christmas is likely to be the most important thing uh, that indicates whether or not you get God's mission. So, if we don't do this well, you know what we do? We take the Christmas story, and I think we can all be guilty of this, and we make the Christmas story our story. If you fill in the blanks, you will make the Christmas story your story. And hopefully in our text today, we can see that it is not in your best interest when Christmas is ultimately your story. What do I mean? Christmas time is a time, and it's a beautiful time. It's a wonderful time. It's off. I I love Christmas time. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Why? Because there's this, this sense of joy that's on display everywhere. Every time, if you were back when we were able to be outside and shopping and you go and you see displays set up in display cases and music and uh, all of these celebratory experiences and the food and the cookies and the ugly sweaters, all of that is fun. All of that brings great joy. Then you go to the next level. Then you've got uh, family, you've got memories and you've got stories and all of those things are wonderful. But as we've said over the last two weeks, You also have things that actually bring real pain. You have things that that, that bring a a sense of, of sadness, an abiding sadness. And we don't necessarily know what to do with that during Christmas. In many ways, we're told to do this almost uh, uh, inhumane exchange that really is, I'm going to exchange the pain that is most certainly here. I'm going to exchange that for these temporary moments of joy or a memory that maybe I can like say, you know, I'm really sad, but I'm not going to think about right that right now. I'm just going to think about the things that make me happy. 
And we do what we do to cope. So this isn't necessarily a judgment of that. But the danger is when we do that with the Christmas story, when we take the Christmas story and we say, I'm going to just only uh, hold on and apprehend these wonderful things and almost bypass or get rid of all of the things that are really painful and hurtful and, and leave me with real gaps in my heart, I'm actually still making Christmas into my story and not God's story. Why? Because God's story includes both the joy and the pain. If we don't understand the Christmas story this way, then ultimately you will make the Christmas story your story. And if the Christmas story is your story, then Christmas will be a distraction from God's mission. If God's mission is to be able to reconcile what has been broken, the things that our hearts are mourning, if that's his mission, but we make Christmas only about the joy and the fun and all the wonderful things that are happening currently, then we make the story our story and we bypass God's mission. That's what we see today. What we know is that before God created anything, he had a plan. Before he created us, he had a plan. Before the fall affected our lives and affected this world, he had a plan. And the Christmas story is a part of God's grand story to reconcile everything that has been broken. So as we go through this text, I I really want us, we're going to go into a text that you may not always think about during Christmas time. But ultimately, if we don't look at the end of the story, if we don't complete the story, if we don't finish the book, we'll never know what the real mission of the story is. And so Christmas doesn't matter if the story isn't finished. Christmas doesn't matter if the mission of the story isn't accomplished. So let's look at the mission of the story. Let's look at God's mission. Let's look at not just the first time Christ showed up, Let's look at the second time that he's going to show up because that's when the story is complete. You've got that first Christmas story that brings us joy, but also leaves us in some real heaviness if it's not completed. And so now we're going to look at the second Christmas story, the second and final time that Jesus is returning once and for all to do and finish what he started during that first Christmas. Let's read Revelation 21. Going to read verses 1 through 7, and then jump down to verse 22. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then we jump down to uh, verse 22. 
I did not see a temple in it. So this, at this point, he's describing uh, th- what this new city will look like. He says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the king of the earth, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. There they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever into it, enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said earlier, before God ever created anything, before any of this stuff happened, God knew the end. The author knows how the book ends. The author knows how the story ends. Some of the worst written, most poorly written stories, uh, you, you hear people talk about this, they can often tell if the author had the end in mind when they started. Because if they didn't have the end in mind and started uh, when they started, you can often see how the plot line feels so unwieldy and all over the place. And there doesn't seem to be this intelligible trail to the end, right? But God has already had that story planned out. The end of the story he started with. Everything God is doing, everything that God has done, this is his plan. And here we are looking at the end. The end. What is the end? The end is God bringing us to himself. God comes to us in order to bring us back to him. That is the end. That is the mission, right? The mission of God is to bring his children, his creation back to himself. So every single letter in this book, every stanza, every part of punctuation, God is creating a tapestry, telling his story of his pursuit, his desire for his people. And not only for his people, but for his people to bring his ends, to bring his purposes to completion. We join him in that. So before we even get any deeper, what does that mean? That means that if, if God's story is about him, then the Christmas story is about him. So the Christmas story is not about you, ultimately. The, Christ, the Christmas story includes you, but it is not ultimately about you. And it is in your best interest that it worked that way. Verse 1, you see, uh, God tells us, John the Revelator has been given this vision from God, and he is describing what this new Christmas is going to look like, this new coming of Jesus is going to look like, what this new kingdom will look like. And this is what he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. So you've got this This, you know, first of all, Revelation uses a lot of metaphors and a lot of what they call phenomenological language. And so there are things, there are certain words and certain phrases and certain pictures that are used that the ancient Jewish people who were hearing this would have very much understood. So there's some work we've got to do to understand that. But ultimately what we're seeing is that the way the world works now, the way that things function now is going to be replaced. It's going to be renovated. It's going to be changed. So so the first thing we get to do is we have to, ultimately, if something needs to be changed, then we have to go, wow, am I aware of all the things that are needing to be changed? 
if, if God is coming to change some things, then there are some things that are functioning in ways that they shouldn't. That actually is the root of a lot of our mourning, whether we realize it or not. Deep down, there's this, this thing, this pining for something different, because ultimately I realize this is not supposed to work this way. Things aren't supposed to be this way. So, so this, this second Christmas is Jesus coming to fix the things that are broken. Now, there's always an interesting part here that I never really thought about until I was preparing for this. When, when in verse one at the end, he says, okay, the first heaven and the first earth pass away, right? And there's language in there in the Greek that might really mean redone or changed or reshaped, maybe not completely eradicated, but redone. But then one thing that does seem to be eradicated is the sea and the sea was no more. Why would that even be a thing? Today, we're like, what's so bad about the ocean? Like, we don't have any problems with the ocean. When you were living in these times, specifically in ancient Mesopotamia, one of the things that was a very fearful thing was the sea. As a matter of fact, if not, just, not just ancient Christian and Jewish writing. If you look at religious groups from, from uh, the ancient Middle East, other religious groups, they all have myths and stories that include the sea. And the sea was always a symbol of judgment. The sea was never something that was good. It was never something that was looked upon fondly because it represented the unknown. Sea creatures and monsters and storms. If you go out to the sea, you are leaving. If you were in like some of the ancient Greek and uh, ancient Roman eras, if you go out to the sea, you are leaving yourselves into, into the hands of capricious, uh, uh, the capricious gods that will just kind of let things happen as they will. If they want to play with you, if they want to do things, if they want to harm you, they just will. So ultimately, when, when, when God includes this, what he's really saying is, it, doesn't, it may not necessarily mean in the new heavens and new earth, there won't be water, there won't be oceans. What he's really saying is, this idea of like unknown judgment, this idea of constantly worrying about judgment befalling you, this idea of constantly worrying about uh, you having to pay the price for something that you may or may not have known that you did, there will be no more of that. There will be no reason for judgment in the new kingdom, in the new, in the new heaven, in the new earth. Why? Because a lot of the things that cause judgment, a lot of the brokenness that bring judgment is gone. A lot of the things that bring division between us and God are gone. The things that make division between us together are gone. The ways in which we might abuse creation are gone. So the sea here is more of a metaphor for judgment. We won't have to deal with judgment any longer. This is such a big thing because that means that the Christmas story, the first one, was a precursor to the second. And the second is God's story is going to do away with all the things that made, that made us broken, that made our relationships broken, that made our relationship with God broken, that made our relationship with each other broken, that made our relationship to creation broken. He has come to fix that. He is coming to make that Right. So you see, the Christmas story, it's not about you. It's still God's story. If you don't believe that, think about what God has said from the, from the beginning. If we don't really properly place the Christmas story, right, against the background of God's grand story, we miss it. 
So listen to these. I got several scriptures here. I could go this upwards of 40 to 45. I'm not going to read them all. But there are, are several scriptures here that show what God's story has always been how we have to really contextualize this story so we don't just ultimately and selfishly make it our own. Genesis 17, 7, what does he say? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to be the God of the descendants after you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Jeremiah 32, right after we get the new covenant, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Leviticus 26, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 11, listen to my voice, do according to all of which I've commanded you so that you shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 30, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 28, you will live in the land that I've given your forefathers. And so you will be my people and I will be your God. Do, do you get the point? Do you see what God has been saying from the beginning? This is what everything is working towards. This is what the story has always been moving toward. This is ultimately what the Christmas story should be pointing us to, that the ways in which God is fulfilling his promise to make us fully his again, to be able to dwell with us again, the way it was in Eden, to be able to reconcile us back so that we can image him fully. This is the story. It's beyond just subjective joy that I get to feel for a month. It's beyond the memories that I get to have about people that made me happy and made me glad. Because ultimately, the memories that we have of people that give us great joy, those memories sometimes and oftentimes are all we have. Even if we had the best relationship, when we inevitably leave this world, there are people here that are left with just those memories. And those memories, while joyful, are inevitably going to be sad and mournful. You can't separate the two. If I have great relationship with you and I'm gone or you're gone, then the memory will be happy and sad. Why? Because I wish I could still have that right now. I wish that I could still uh, hold on to that person one more time. I wish that I could still have that conversation. And that's if we had good relationships. What about the relationships that aren't good? There are some of us, I would imagine all of us on different levels, have relationships that ultimately on this side of eternity will not likely be made right. Now, we, as people of, of, that want to be reconcilers, we want to do our part to see to whatever degree we can do that. But it takes two and we, a lot of things have to happen there and it doesn't always happen. But ultimately, when we really hold on to that Christmas, then can be a really depressing time because there are people with whom you have broken relationships. Whether it's your fault, their fault, both of y'all's fault, doesn't matter. There are people with whom those relationships are broken. And this Christmas is a time where, yes, there are things that are joyful, and then there are things that are mournful. Because you're almost like, I, I really wish that that relationship was better. I really wish that that relationship was something that could actually be reconciled right now. 
No better time to feel the joy of reconciliation than these jovial celebratory moments of Christmas. And I don't have that with this. And if they're a close family member, it's even heavier. Or maybe there are family, there are folks right now where this is a really sad time because some of the closest people to you are no longer here. They've bridged that chasm between here and eternity and you long for them and you miss them. And you miss them not only for, for, for conversations that you had that were valuable, but you miss them for conversations you didn't get to have. I was sharing with, with our staff earlier today. I have this overwhelming longing. Ever since losing my mom, I have this longing and this sadness during Christmas. Because A, it's Christmas, and my mom just was so great at curating memories during Christmas, and her birthday is like a week after. But, but also, there's this feeling of, Longing and sadness and this deep kind of dual sadness and joy. Lyric was, was waxing eloquent today, giving us some really good insight on melancholy. And there's this sense of like, I'm having to hold on and be aware of the things that are really broken and sad. And also this idea that there are things that are hopeful and there are things that very well could get better, might get better. I have a little bit of in me to go, you know, things are really sad, but it's not the end of the story. And, I, and there's a comfort in that. And on some level, on a huge level for me, there's this, it's hard, to, it's hard to balance. It's hard to get to that healthy place of going, these things are heavy and hard, and these things are also joyful or could be joyful. And I have this longing because there are things that I never got to say to my mom. I never got to do with my mom. I never got to reach that next level of relationship as a father to my kids and a grand, for her to be a grandmother to her grandchildren. Didn't get that. And so there's this longing of something that will never be on this side of eternity. Christmas gets sad when you think about that. And if that's all I do, then that's what I make. That's how I make Christmas into my story. But if I make it about God's story and God says, I'm coming to reconcile what's been broken, that feeling that you feel, during Christmas, when you're sad, when you're, you feel the pressure to hide the sadness because we're all supposed to be artificially joyful to some degree, we don't have to do that because that feeling that you're feeling is ultimately a very accurate thing of, I'm, I am completely overrun with evidence that things that have happened are examples of things that ought not be. The world is not supposed to function this way. The loss that we feel, we were never designed to feel. Before the fall, we were never meant to handle the outcome, the consequences of the fall. We were never designed for that. We were designed for perfect relationship. So if you're feeling pain, don't feel the pressure to overlook it. Don't feel the pressure to have to say, well, let me just count my blessings so that my blessings will supplant the things that are hurt hurtful the things that cause real pain, the holes that I might still have in my heart. Now, we don't have to live in the holes. We don't have to live in the pain. We don't have to live in the shame, but there's a tension that we're just called to live in. And Christmas invites us to live in the tension. Why? Because Christmas isn't our story. If it's my story, then I feel the pressure to have to make these things right. If it's, if it's my story, then I feel the pressure to have to hold on to the things that are good and do as often as I can, remember them, bring them up to my remembrance, bring them up again. Find, but here's the other thing, find ways to keep recapitulating that kind of joy. And that becomes exhausting because the joy I had with my mom, I can't remake here. 
I might go through everything in my power to try to remake that, build relationships to try to remake that. I'm never going to have that again on this side of eternity, which means I need a joy that supersedes that kind of joy. I need a hope that will supersede even the, even the memories that I have of my mom. I need something more. You need something more. So if the story is God's story, I get the more. I get something more. This promise to remake, this promise to reconcile, <clears throat> this promise to do away with all the things that cause the, the, the breaking, that cause the fissure. <clears throat> So I hope that you get the point. This is everything that God has been working towards this time that that we're going to be able to fully dwell in the presence of God, dwelling with each other, dwelling in this new heaven and new earth, using this language that we're being prepared as if we're going into a marriage. This idea that God is longing to be with us longing to make these things right again. This is something so, so powerful because he uses language that, that goes beyond anything that we've seen on this side of eternity. Look at what he says next. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God is dwelling with us, dwelling with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, fulfilling that promise that he's been making in in Ezekiel and Leviticus and in Genesis. And all throughout the Old Testament, he's been saying, Christmas is coming. The first Christmas and the final Christmas is coming. I'm coming to dwell with you. And when I dwell with you, all of the things all of the things that cause division between you and other people and division between you and me, they're going to be gone. All of the things that caused the real pain in your heart, the loss of people, the loss of things within yourself, they're going to be gone. He says, I'm dwelling with you. And then verse four is the big thing. Look, everything I just described right now, these are things that bring real mourning. These are things that bring real tears. And we don't have language. We don't know what to do with our tears. Some of the saddest things that, that, that I believe have happened within Christendom, especially here in American Christianity, is that we have done this thing that I said before. We find ways to to anesthetize ourselves against real mourning. Christmas is a great way to do that. I don't want to mourn the things that are broken. And sometimes it's wise because I don't have any language. I don't have any language, so I don't know what to do with that. So I might just go into a tailspin of just depression because all I have is just really bad things, right? Because when it's your story, that's all you have. But when it's God's story, now I've got God's story says, I have something that I'm going to do with your tears. He, he doesn't promise, right, that, that on this side of eternity that, that we won't have tears. He doesn't, he doesn't say that we're not going to have heartbreak. He doesn't say that we won't suffer loss on this side of eternity. But he says, hold on, be patient, don't skip the rest of the story. Because here's what's going to happen. When that second Christmas comes, when that second coming, that second advent, that second and final arrival of Jesus and the kingdom of God coming fully, when that happens, verse four, he will wipe away 
every tear from their eyes and death will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Think about this. Two things are happening here. The first thing are things that we know how to do. Wiping tears away. See, that's the, if all you do is, is wipe tears away, you don't remove the mechanism that causes the tears to flow. So it's good to be like, hey, wipe the tears away. That's great. But guess what? Tears are coming again. So now you need to just find somebody to be a, a perennial tear wiper. I need to find, and you know what our tear wipers are? Our tear wipers are sometimes some of these things that we do to comfort ourselves, sometimes good, sometimes sinful. Relationships that we use to comfort ourselves, sometimes good, sometimes sinful. Different ways of viewing ourselves, different positions we may hold so that we can almost ignore the tears. That's our ability to wipe the tears away. Sometimes good, sometimes hurtful, sometimes unhealthy. So, so just wiping tears away alone, that wouldn't be enough. If God's wiping our tears away now, God can just infinitely wipe tears away, which is better than what we can do. That still wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be as good as what he will actually do because he's not only just wiping the tears away. I love that he wipes tears away because it means he acknowledges your pain. He doesn't go, why are you crying? You are too blessed to be stressed. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that mess. He doesn't, he acknowledges and engages your pain. Then he removes the reason for the pain. See, that's real relationship. Sometimes if you're a fixer or a doer, you can have this in business. You can have this in families. You can have this in ministry. I'm a doer. We've got, object, we, we've got deliverables. We've got objective goals. They've got to be hit. And that's it. That's the only thing I can function on right now. So if I don't have these things going, that's it. That's, there's nothing else that gets me jazzed more than just finishing these tasks. Vitally important. Getting rid of stuff, that's really important. Checking things off the list, really important. But God doesn't just check this off the list. He says, yes, I'm going to wipe tears away, but I'm not going to overlook the pain. I'm with you in your pain so much so that I'm getting ready to alleviate everything that causes you pain. I'm alleviating everything that's caused any sense of brokenness. So you know what ultimately he's doing? I'm not just wiping your tears away. I'm removing your tear ducts. You'll never need them again. This is what Christmas is. This is what Christmas promises. Not just temporary hope for the now, but permanent hope for the future. Here we have this promise. When Jesus comes, that second Christmas, that first Christmas, there were still tears, right? Because it was a foreshadowing of the real Christmas that's coming. So here, verse four, he's going to wipe away every tear and death will be no more. There will no longer be any reason for shedding any tears for loss. We won't have to cry or be worried about our own death nor will we, will we be uh, uh, mourning the loss of our loved ones. What won't happen anymore. There will be no more death. He will wipe away every tear. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. All things new. If Christmas doesn't lead us, if Christmas doesn't lead us to a place where we're longing for things to be new, then we are living in a place where we're trying to sustain joy for ourselves. That's what we're doing. That's why Christmas, it's a, it's a big business and, and I get why, uh, because a lot of times we're almost kind of cycling from, you know, Christmas is the time where I can for a moment not have to think about the things that cause me real pain. And that's really, kind of, we play a trick on ourselves because we're still thinking about it. We just know better than to verbalize it and to share it. And so it just becomes this cycle back and forth. 
But if, if Jesus is coming to make all things new, then even uh, we no longer have to have these old coping strategies that ultimately don't work. He is coming to remake everything. So if, if, if we think back again through like, man, Christmas time, if I'm being honest about all the things that I think about, the good things and the harmful things and the hurtful things and the things that remind me of things that have been really hard, if I'm reminded during Christmas time of people that were supposed to protect me but hurt me, Christmas is hard. Tears are real. I need something new. If I'm reminded of the people that did protect me but aren't here, there's real tears. That pain is real. The tears are real. And I need something new. I need a new way of right now, the way we function is I'm close to you, but there's this, this undergirding truth that this, what, this thing that we have can't possibly be permanent. At some point, to love is to lose, right? In, in human relationships, to love is to lose. If I love you, then I better be prepared for loss when either I, uh, when to, at the idea of me being gone or the idea of you being gone. To love is to lose, which means to love well is inevitably going to mean mourning well. That's it. That's the way we function. We need a new way of functioning, and that's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to do away with that broken way that we're forced to have to live, forced to have to function and say, I've got a whole new functionality now because I'm removing everything that caused the loss. I've come to make all things new, not just a few things, not just certain aspects, every single way, the paradigm by which we understand the world, God and ourselves is being completely replaced, completely remade. And that begins with God dwelling with us. The promise that he started, the, the plan that he started, I will be, they will be my people and I will be their God. And when I'm dwelling among them, there will never be any need. There won't be any need for light because I am the light. There will be no night any longer. There won't be any need for tears because there will be no more death. I am making all things new. So God is promising to dwell with us. He dwells with us to a degree right now. We always talk about in theological circles, this already not yet principle, right? There's a sense in which some of the kingdom has been inaugurated. Some of this has already started, but it hasn't fully been like that coronation has not fully happened yet. The, the end, the consummation of that has not happened yet. That restoration has not fully happened yet, but it's coming and we can taste eternity a little bit that's why every time we're mourning when we lose, because we're realizing it's not supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to be tasting eternity. I shouldn't be tasting death. There's something wrong in the recipe. There's certain things that I get. Yes, that tastes okay. This here, this isn't supposed to be in there. We should never lose that because every time we realize that the recipe is wrong, that's how we long for the right one. That's how we have hope that the right one is coming. That's how we know that something better, a new meal is coming. So we can go to Christ even in, in during the Christmas season with our pains and crying out that he will indeed comfort us. Why do we cry out for comfort? We don't cry out for comfort as like a, a, just a stab in the dark and we just hope that something lands, throwing spaghetti against the wall, seeing if it sticks. We're crying out for comfort because we know that the kingdom that's coming promises comfort. When we cry out for healing, we cry out for healing in, the, in our lives because we know that the kingdom that's coming promises healing. 
So we hope for these things. We hope for these things. We long for these things. We hope we get to see some of that on this side of eternity. That's how, that's how we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ultimately, Lord, every place that I see in my own life, in my own society, any place I see your kingdom not on display, I long for it. Not for some virtue signaling thing, not because I want to tell everybody how, how woke I am about the kingdom that's coming. It's ultimately because I know God promised that kingdom is coming. And God told me to pray in such a way that says I'm longing for that kingdom to come. So Christmas should be a time that increases our longing for the kingdom that's coming. So when I'm crying and I'm heavy hearted, I long for the kingdom that's coming. And Christmas should remind me that he's doing that. Christmas should remind me that he's coming. Christmas should remind us that he's making all things new. So this Christmas Keep asking out. Keep crying out. If you find yourself in a place of this, this melancholy where there's a deep sadness and you're, and you're trying to wrestle and, and, and hold on to a sense of hope, keep crying out and be honest with God with that because he can handle that. He's come to do away with that. So he's here. Cry out. Ask for his comfort in this time of distress because he has come to dwell with us. You look at uh, towards the, the end of this uh, chapter, after he goes in and uh, at the very end of these verses, uh, he, t- he tells uh, John, the revelator here, to write these words down. They're faithful and true. And he says, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. You know what he's saying? I am the story. I am the full story. If you don't get me, you need to understand me at the beginning and you need to understand me at the end. Don't skip. Don't stop reading. Don't skip the end of the book because you're going to miss the mission of God. And then he says, uh, as he goes towards the end, he says, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. In other words, if I'm longing for what, not just longing for Jesus, but for what Jesus promises, like he came to make things new. He came to bring us back to God. So I'm longing to be reconciled. I'm longing. The only way that I make Christmas not about me is that I long to be reconciled to God and everything that that entails. Now, what does that entail? Go to the very end, verses 22 through 27. After, you know, for, for verses eight, nine, all the way through, now you'll see a lot of metaphors that are used and a lot of language that's used to describe what this new city of God will look like. And then when he gets to the end of the description, John says, I didn't see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, they are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. You understand what he's saying. He's basically showing you this. Not only am I the story, but I am the temple. The place in which you have, the place that we often will run to to find safety or the place we will run to to console our hearts, the place that we will run to to to, to comfort ourselves, these temples that we kind of make for ourselves, Jesus is the story. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the city. He is, he's remaking us to be not just like him, but to be with him, to dwell with him. That's where safety is. Why, is there, why, why does he point out 
that there is no need uh, for the sun or the moon. There's no need for any other uh, light, supernatural or uh, extraterrestrial lighting. Why, why, why does he have to point that out? Well, ultimately, back then you knew where there is no light. Whenever there's nighttime, crime is certain to rise. Danger is certain to rise. And so he's like, you, when I come, there will be no fear of danger. There will be no fear of death. There will be no fear of danger. You will have full safety in me. You will have full trust in me. You will have a complete relationship with me that you've never experienced before. You'll never ever, ever have a reason for doubt, never have a reason for fear. You will have a never, never have a reason for mourning. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. As you look at the, these are the last few chapters of the Bible here. This is how the story ends, how the Bible unfolds this reality uh, before our very eyes. God's story has always been moving toward this destination. All of our brothers and sisters uh, in the faith have looked for for 2,000 years. They have looked in the midst of triumphs, in the midst of, of failures, in the midst of crowns, in the midst of swords, in the midst of laughter, tears, joy, sorrow working as they worked, repenting as they repented, dying as they died. And much like them, we are called to wait upon the return of Jesus. As they used to say, with our hands set to the plow. Throughout this Advent season, we've been tracing the storylines of of God's story from the beginning of humanity. But this, this is where our story will end. This is where our story ultimately culminates. But here's the thing. That ending is just a new beginning. When Jesus says, I came, I come to make all things new. He is remaking our beginning. He is remaking our hope. He is remaking our story because it's his story. And so when he says, I am remaking everything, he's giving us a new beginning, the beginning of a new story beyond anything that can be captured by our thoughts, by our words. And so I'm going to close with uh, words from C.S. Lewis because he captures it better than almost anybody I've ever seen. This is the final paragraph of the Narnia books. If you've read any of those, the very, the, depending on the, the order that you believe in, the last battle really uh, is the, the, the way that story ends. And at the end of the last battle, this is, uh, this is how he words it. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it, is, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This encapsulates God's story. This is the story that we have been invited into. This is the story that Christmas should be pointing us to. Yes, we are celebrating the coming of Christ. 
And we are celebrating the promises that Christ has brought. But ultimately, we are celebrating the coming, the second Christmas, the final Christmas, the end of this story and the beginning of the greatest story never told. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is his story we're invited in. This is Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are holy. And you are near to us. God, you don't just leave us stranded trying to figure things out. You don't leave us, even though we feel alone at times. We feel alone in our pain. We feel alone in our suffering. We feel alone in our, in our loss, whether it's loss from people that have gone and that have passed, loss that, uh, because of relationships that are broken right now, loss because of pain in our bodies, loss because of sickness, loss because of uh, situations and circumstances that have not worked out well. God, we are mourning. And we, are, we, we pray that we not use Christmas to escape our mourning. Father, I pray that we use Christmas to engage our mourning, not alone, but to meet you there because you engage it with us. You engage it with us and you promise to bring an end to it eventually. So God, A, we pray that you would give us little peaks, little foreshadowing into the kingdom that's coming. Give us foreshadowing of healing. Give us foreshadowing of hope. Give us foreshadowing of tears being wiped away. Give us foreshadowing of death being eradicated. Father, I pray that, that this Christmas would give us an increased longing for the final Christmas, the end of this story and the beginning of the greatest one. God, we pray that this would happen so that this would not be something that we just engage selfishly. We pray that this would be about something far greater than ourselves. Let our story be ultimately about yours. For your glory, because it is in our best interest, ultimately you've worked, you've worked things out so that it is for our benefit that this be your story and not ours. Lord, let that be our testimony today, this Christmas season, as we look forward to the final Christmas. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the benediction of God, this final blessing. We just said it. Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. I am the alpha and the omega. Other places, God says, I am the author and the finisher of your faith. So the final blessing, the thing we hold on to, the ways in which we continue to cling to the promises of God, this benediction now, receive it. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org 
or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.